Welcome to episode four of Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien. Episode four is part two of a conversation I held with Miss Lindsay Schlacks. If you did not hear episode three, you might want to stop here and get an opportunity to listen to episode three, where you find out the amazing journey that shaped Miss Lindsay Schlacks as an amazing leader here in the Bay Area. Without further ado, let's lean into part two of the interview with Ms. Lindsay Schlacks. Full transparency, uh, we're both PLI members, uh, UC Berkeley Principal Leadership Institute. Uh, I'm cohort 13 and 18. you are cohort 18. So we were talking one day and you had mentioned something about the Hippocratic Oath for Teachers. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, that's something different. And yeah. I wanted you to share a little more. I want to hold a deeper conversation. And this is what generated this conversation here at mm-hmm. Paradigmatic Sciences uh, yeah. this podcast. What is the Hippocratic Oath for Teachers? Uh, what is it about? How did you come up with it? So, Please share. Uh, it's, it's still an idea that's forming. Um, it, it, you know, there's no solidity to it yet, but it is this, it's this concept that, you know, so teachers and educators, God, we are so we are, we are academics, right? We are professionals. We're not just run-of-the-mill workers who carry out a job that doesn't require thought. We are, we're artisans in our own classrooms. We create experiences and we, we create products that are designed by us and we provide assessments and feedback and we build relationships. Um, and we are constantly developing professionally as well. Um, when we're doing our job right, at least. And that, uh, one of the things that PLI taught, taught us to at least think about was this idea of the professionalism or of the teaching profession. Like, how are we regarded and what systems are in place that make us a profession rather than a job? Um, And we don't really have a lot of systems that do that. As teachers, a lot of the systems that exist for us to learn more, to be certified, because I hate the word certificated. It makes no sense. It's not a real word. Um, (laughs) But for us to be certified, right? We are essentially board certified, but there's no real board that we report to that holds us accountable. It's not made up up of our peers. Um, We don't have system-wide professional learning standards and obligations. And we don't have a core philosophy that anyone who goes into teaching and is board certified in some way uh, agrees to, right? Nurses and doctors, especially, that's where the Hippocratic Oath name is, you know, where it came from. They promise first to do no harm. But as educators, we don't promise that. We don't promise anything. Interesting. Um, Interesting. And I think we should. I think we should promise some things. You know, first, take care of the kids. How about that? What would be different for our, for our profession if we said, yep, I'm a teacher now. I will first promise to take care of the kids then I will teach my subject matter thoughtfully and responsibly. I will collaborate with peers. I will be open to learning about new ways to engage in my profession as we learn more and more together. I will work to hold my peers accountable to this oath and provide them with support um i watched uh i watched the movie drumline last night it's one of my glue movies comfort Mm -hmm. movies um and my wife and my wife and i that's one of ours too and um you know in that movie the the leaders are talking about this concept one band one sound um and they come at it from a slightly from a definite control the members approach which i i don't identify with but everybody being responsible for each other i I would love that in our profession. I would love to see that in teaching where it's not on, it, it, 
it's not on a site administrator to say, hey, teacher, I don't like what you're doing. You change it. And then the only solidarity that shows up for teachers or that they have the ability to access is solidarity from the union and pushing back against the administrator for saying they wanted to see better from them. Like, what if there were solidarity for saying, I want a higher level of care for kids at my school? Hmm. So within the Hippocratic Oath for doctors, when they say do no harm, like, uh, they're looking to or, or or obligating themselves not to intentionally harm people through right. the practice of medicine. What what are you what have you identified as harm that we do as educators? <laughs> what will we be preventing from occurring? Um, public humiliation. Uh, I think that's that's a big one. And it's been a big part of the teaching practice. And um you know, I think any of us who've gone through 12 years of school, graduated from high school, have experienced a teacher scolding you in front of the whole group. That can be real harmful for kids. Um, the push out in the school to prison pipeline, the the carrying out, right, with <laughs> to reference my six-year-old's favorite hero, with great power comes great responsibility. If you have the power to kick a kid out of your class to remove them from their opportunity to learn. I think you also have the obligation to be paying attention to the patterns around who you're kicking out and who you're removing. And how many times is that happening to that kid over multiple classrooms? And are there assumptions that are being made about the way that they communicate or the way that they respond to things that are leading to them getting kicked out even more? Um, I think being resistant to or undereducated around disabilities and accommodations and modifications for students with 504s and IEPs does harm. Um, and, you know, in some moments, it's about the harm reduction rather than doing no harm whatsoever. You know, in this moment, in a pandemic, when we have most of the students in California on distance learning and doing Zoom school, I can't say that we're not doing harm. I don't know that this is right or good or healthy. I don't know what the better, righter, healthier option is. Um, but as we're learning more about what it is to do distance learning and online school, I think things are coming up that would fit under that. There are stories, there's there are stories of teachers saying, you need to wear shoes in your home when you're in class. For a lot of families, that goes against their cultural tradition, right? And also, why do you get to have a say about what a kid has on their feet in their own home? It's not okay. There are teachers who are saying, no eating on camera, no drinking. You can't get up and take a break. You can't go to the bathroom in their own home. Um, and, you know, all of those and then all of the regular micro and macro aggressions that happen in classrooms to young people who are of a marginalized identity, whether they're, um, you know, a, a, a person of color or um, whether or a young woman or a member of the LGBTQ community. You know, at the beginning of this school year, we had a ninth grader. We'd had pre-meetings with everybody. This ninth grader started. Um, and was dead named in like their first three classes of the day because our student information system hadn't been updated to reflect their name. And so as teachers were doing role, they knew there was a trans student in their classroom who had a different name, but the role sheet didn't say it. And so that kid three times in a row had to experience um, they're hearing their dead name called out in front of an entire room of kids. And they were in the comfort, the safety of their yeah. own home, right? Um, there's another, there was another news story of an educator who saw their student, a young black boy, um, saw a student in, in his home playing with a toy gun, thought it was real and called the cops on him. And the police showed up at that kid's house. And now the student also has a discipline record as a result of it for bringing a inappropriate object or a dangerous weapon or something to school but he didn't even leave his house um there are things that we can work to be more aware of and do the hard work of building into our practice that will reduce that kind of harm even as we are continuing to perpetuate a system that we know isn't right um, because some education 
is better than none. And people working hard to make it better is better than just giving up and saying, well, can't fix it. Yeah. You know, it makes me think when we start talking about harm, like I remember uh, I just did a workshop and one of part of my workshop, uh, it was a piece around a six-year-old who has autism outside of Philly or in Philly that um, the six-year-old autistic kid made a, a gun mm-hmm. gesture with the fingers and the teacher called the cops on the six-year-old autistic mm-hmm. kid, right? I was like, ooh, like just the harm there, yeah. not just the child, but the parent. And so it made me think, uh, when, as you're talking about like the Hippocratic Oath, there are all kinds of things that come with that with being a doctor, right? Um, there's these things, what does it look like, sound like, feel like? Like there's this profession, there's this training that exists prior to becoming a doctor. And uh, you have to do a variety of things mm-hmm. to stay current, uh, repressed. And just think about the teaching profession, because I'm a huge believer in professional development and supporting teachers, because I, I think at the heart of our challenges to transform or change outcomes is how we support the mm-hmm. building the capacity of teachers. And you think about a, a credentialing program. And I remember when I went through the credentialing program, like those programs don't prepare you to be transformative. So what would need to change? Like, in, the, in a credentialing program, if, if we really want mm-hmm. to have a Hippocratic oath for teachers, like what would, well, not even in, in a program, what would we need to do right now to support teachers to build their capacity so that we can say that they are mm-hmm. doing no harm so that we can certi- yeah. certify yeah. them? I think right? building more time into teacher schedules for professional development is one piece. I think it would be wonderful to see um, union contracts that instead of saying teachers will teach five preps, five classes and have two class periods off and the work day is from, you know, 7.45 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. and teachers cannot be required to do anything beyond those hours. I, I think it would be great to see the work day extended slightly, the class load reduced hire more teachers and build in more time for professional development and for teachers to try to run inquiry cycles. Um, I think there are wonderful models of supervision and evaluation that are out there right now that do give teachers the opportunity to run inquiry cycles in their own classrooms. Um, And I've been lucky enough to be able to be part of going through some of those processes. I've also been part of evaluations where a principal would just show up in my classroom on the last day and be like, hey, I forgot to evaluate you. I'm giving you a superior because, you know, I know you're fine. Sign here, please. Um, I think that would have to stop. And I think that we would also have to have more, hire more administrators and make more space for administrators and instructional coaches um, to work with teachers in that capacity. Um, I think in teaching programs and credentialing programs, I think we should do rather than a, you know, a semester of haphazard observation where you collect hours and then a semester of student teaching that's totally varied and incredibly under supported. Uh, I would love to see a year long internship following um, or concurrent with parts of the teacher credentialing program where the first semester, maybe you are observing one semester and then next semester, you're a substitute teacher for this semester. You are available to the district to work as a sub and you can just learn about kids and classroom management. You don't have to worry about delivering content at the same time or writing lesson plans or anything like that. You can figure out what your stance is as an educator. You can watch for who's caught, who am I seeing again and again, or where am I being requested to help? Um, What would I want to change if this classroom were mine or that classroom were mine and really kind of dive into those possibilities and that kind of learning. And then follow that with the student teaching semester where you finally actually work on delivering content and building relationship with a class across the entire semester, giving grades and things like that. I think it would make a big difference people would be able to learn quite a lot more. Oh, absolutely. I think that would make a huge difference. I do know of an organization, mm-hmm. San Francisco Teacher Residency, 
they're here in the Bay Area, and I knew I know they do amazing work at a variety of schools in uh, San Francisco, I believe it is, San, okay. San Francisco Teacher Residency. And I do know they place students with a teacher at a school site, and they work in that class for the school year with mm -hmm. a, a gradual release for the person to teach the class. So not only do you get to learn the culture of the school mm -hmm. in terms of what's happening, whatever that professional learning community is providing mm -hmm. and, and values, but then they're also seeing that teacher work inside the classroom, mm -hmm. establishing relationships with the kids. The kids actually know that person. And then they also get to gradually release to be mm -hmm. the actual teacher of that class. And yes. I think that is an amazing model where they also have outsiders, uh, people who are their coaches that come in and see them teach and how they build relationships and the, and San Francisco teacher residency in order to be part of it, they have an equity and social mm -hmm. just, justice focus. Right. <clears throat> and so as you were talking about, it's like, hmm, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. Like I know about SFTR, San Francisco teacher residency, and they seem to fit your description, but not all programs, right. not all, all programs are like that. I know, I, I know I didn't go through a program like that. Did you have yeah, a similar experience um, when you're credentialing? I did. I didn't my I did mine um through the University of San Francisco. Um and I picked them in part because, you know, the the they have a very social justice minded approach. Um and I I was really interested in that. And I wanted the kind of the smaller class community. Um and and, you know, I had a decent experience, but I had to advocate for my own placement, um, trying to find the right place for me to get my student teaching. I had to do the work of asking individual teachers if I could observe um, in their classrooms. And I was lucky, I think, looking back on it, there are two big things that really helped, I think, prepare me to be a good educator, a good teacher. One was while I was in college, I worked as a paraeducator, an instructional assistant, working with young, working with kids with disabilities. I worked in elementary school level for a couple of years with um, kids with autism in special day classes. Um, and then I worked as a case manager uh, for young adults in transition programs. A lot of folks don't realize that students with moderate to severe disabilities are allowed to stay in the public school system until they turn 22. So after they complete high school and earn a certificate of completion, they don't usually get a diploma, they get to have another three and a half years or so of functional life skills education. And so I would work with 18, 19, 20 year olds on how to ride the bus or um, how to apply for a job, um, how to style your hair, how to ask someone out on a date all sorts of things like that. And my experience as a paraprofessional really um, helped me understand what it means to truly differentiate and be welcoming for students with disabilities in a class. Um, and I think that that is something that would be beneficial for all teachers to spend time doing. Um, and then I, and then I spent a, a, yeah. a year as a substitute teacher as well. While I was preparing to do my credentialing program, I worked as a sub and man, did I learn about what kinds of, what kind of stances to take when you're just meeting kids for the first time. How do you get them to do stuff when they have no idea who you are or why they should listen to you? Um, <laughs> there was one time at Mission High School, uh, one of my very first sub teaching jobs, I was trying so hard to look professional uh, and adults, and I was wearing, I wore a dress and some kitten heels, and I showed up to, I was supposed to substitute for a social studies class, but then things changed, and they put me in to sub for PE instead, and they walked me into the gym, <laughs> they walked me into the gym, and they were like, okay, we've had, I think they had like the campus security aide there watching the students. And so I, they were like, he can tell you what they're up to. And he was like, hey, uh, they're just, you know, doing whatever, working on homework. They can work out a little bit if they want to. The only thing you got to do is make sure the football team doesn't get to the basketballs. Good luck. And then he walked out. <laughs> There's me, <laughs> 20 
four years old, maybe, wearing heels and a dress, you know, ready to try to look like a Miss Frizzle type teacher. And I've got these six foot, six foot five kids, this football team that's like, hey, we want to play basketball. (laughs) What do I do in that moment? What do you do? I totally, I did not win. (laughs) But I learned, right? I learned about you know, what kind of stance I need to show up with. I learned about what kinds of things are reasonable to ask adults to control on their own and what kinds of things are not. Um, and I learned the extent of, of my own power and the fact that sometimes you can be as mean or as loud as you want to. Um, you can use your commanding voice um, and kids have agency. Yeah. You know, one of the things before I lead back into this uh, Hippocratic, oh, one of the things that, that I found funny is like you said you were all prepared, you were professionally dressed. And just by switching your, you're still at the same school, but just by switching the content, we're going to take you from social studies, uh, ELA, you're not going to be in the classroom, we're going to take you to PE, how your dress yeah. all of Library. a sudden became something different, right? Yeah. You did change, right? Anyway, I'm just. Yeah. I just like, yeah. hey, please let like that yeah. happen in the blink yeah. of an eye. And there was in no school, way I was going right? to be able to be successful in that moment. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So here's, here's, here's one of the things that I've learned just in my years, not only just as an educator, being the oldest brother, husband, father, all these other types of things, is that when people experience things, they do a lot of self-reflection. They're mm-hmm. they're meta around their own experiences. And so I find it interesting that you and your experiences as an educator, as some of the things that you've experienced as a student, going back to like the fourth grade, uh, then in like middle school or high school with Prop 187. And you've come up with this idea around the Hippocratic Oath. Like for me, that sounds like, you know, I've never heard that from anybody else. Like, but this is something that came out of your experiences and your thinking, thinking about the Hippocratic Oath and how you are thinking about it. What are some of the things that you feel that you did that might have violated the Hippocratic Oath, which led you to these types of conclusions? Um, Well, uh, I remember, gosh, my... (laughs) Don't don't incriminate yourself. I I don't want you to get in trouble. I I recognize that... Teaching and education is a profession where you grow and that you can't be as you can't you make you make mistakes. And that humility of looking at your own mistakes is it's being willing to say, whoa, I was wrong. There is a huge piece of what makes an educator um, really good. And that, you know, it's actually a piece of what's in the Hippocratic Oath for for doctors. I will not be ashamed to say I know not nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. Um, And Hmm. um, so I remember, I think it was my second year at Asawa Soda, my sophomores were, I was having really disparate results across my three classes. Um, And the classes had very different makeups. Um, One class in particular had four black students, which was, mm, I think, double what was in any of the other classes. I had a couple of English language learners, which wasn't very common at Asawa Soda, um, we, and we didn't have much EL support. I had a student who had spent most of the first eight years of her school career in um, a hyper-Christian private school that used the Abeka books curriculum, which teaches creationism as part of history. Um, You know, it was just the class just needed a lot more. And I didn't see the need. I saw the failure. And I remember making a shift at one point where I had been like, you guys, the reason you're not doing well on these quizzes is because you're not doing your homework. You have to do your homework. You have to do it. You have to try. And I just, uh, I took an entire day and taught them about grit. Um, We watched the TED talk about grit. Um, And 
I changed my grading policy. I made homework worth a ton more to try and incentivize it. And it didn't work. And of course it didn't work because the problem wasn't that they weren't trying. The problem was that they weren't prepared to do the level of work that I was assigning them. And I didn't see it. Um, I wish that I had. Um, And I learned Hmm. to look a lot more for the why. Um, and for the motivation that, uh, you know, just me saying you need to do this because it's important for you to learn about history, that that's not sufficient. They need to know why history matters to them. What, what's the, it's all old stuff. Why do you, why do I care? I want to, you know, learn about video games or I want to learn about music or art or fashion. Why I want to have to learn about all of these dead people. Um, I, you know, or kids, don't have their own quiet space in which to do homework or they don't get to sleep because their older brothers are playing video games in their room all night. Um, There are a lot of things that can be in the way of a student doing the task that I set for them, but I am responsible for helping them learn regardless of what is going on outside of the classroom that they may be dealing with. That's my job. Um, And I don't know that I did my job properly that year. Um, But over time, I adapted a lot of things and adjusted and figured out kind of safety nets for kids who didn't do homework or who couldn't do homework. Um, But I still haven't completely solved it. Getting kids to do homework is really difficult and getting more and more difficult all the time. Um, So that's one example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that that's not incriminating, and the statute, statute limitations on <laughs> so that one probably I run out too. Time, uh, um, there were a bunch of kids running down the hallway, um, and I wanted them to be quiet. And I stepped out into the hall and I shouted out, "Hey there, boy!" Oh, because I started talking, and then I looked, and I, you know, I was gonna. It, what I was gonna say was like. Hey there, boy, you need to come here. You need to stop that. That's just what was coming out of my coming up for me. That, those were the words that were coming out. And I looked and the kid who was closest to me, who was looking me right in the eye, was a young black man. And as the word boy was coming out of my mouth, I was like, shit, that's really fucking racist. Um, and stumbled over my words in that moment and I tried to save it and I tried to undo it and I was, but I was too scared to name what I had just done. I didn't know how to navigate it. Um, and so, you know, it was boy, yo was like the cover up. And then I was like, well, I'm just going to pretend that he didn't catch what I just did. Um, but he did, I'm sure. Um, and you know, that's harm. That's harm that I did to that young man. Um, by not thinking about my words before I tried to scold him for something. Um, And, you know, who knows? Maybe I did see who he was before I started speaking. And maybe that's where that language came from because I had seen all sorts of stuff and I was replicating things. I don't know. Um, But those are, you know, those moments when I was talking about how we have, as educators, we have an obligation to pay attention to the patterns and the identities of the people that we are assigning consequences to. We have to pay attention to the patterns of our language and the way that we talk to people um, and how that matches Mm -hmm. up with their identities as well. Because if we don't, we're doing harm. Absolutely. So I'm in total agreement and I'm I'm thankful that I've even had the opportunity to bump into you mm-hmm. for whatever reason, PLI, Bay Area, living in Alameda, whatever the case may be, because I think just this concept alone, uh, it's amazing. And I, I, I think it needs to get more traction. Uh, I think people need to think about this more, whether that comes to fruition or not is really irrelevant. I just do believe that the conversation around educators and doing no harm because of how we're positioned in society, we're the one thing that children, they have to attend. Attending school, it's compulsory. You don't have an option not to go. And so you have to interact with us. And if we are an institution that is producing harm, 
then we are positioned throughout this nation, harming children, traumatizing children, right. and then releasing them into adulthood. And it makes me think about right. all the things that we're experiencing now as a society, um, not just the police brutality, the payment of the, the uh, women are paid less, um, some issues around the, uh, supporting the LGBT community. There are all these things that are happening. And the one common theme that everybody has is that we've gone through public school. We've gone through some form of schooling where uh, we potentially did harm because I'm trying to think about how do you arrive at a place where you're mm -hmm. seeing this inhumane treatment if it hasn't been mm -hmm. taught to you through the schooling process, right? Or uh, how do we try to mitigate it if, if it was coming from outside in the community and then maybe we didn't, maybe we didn't provide an, a different uh, opportunity or choice with inside of the school. Right. Um, right. through healing then, center practices, et cetera. So yeah. and then I, think uh, I really do love this idea for doctors who take the Hippocratic oath. They also have like a, a governing board of their peers, the people who make determinations about whether or not doctors have violated that oath are other doctors. It's not people who aren't in the profession anymore. Um, you know, and, and in teaching, that's not always the case. A lot of the time it's an elected board member who may never have had experience in the classroom. Um, and it, it changes. Yeah. It changes the ability of the people who are holding you accountable to understand what you're dealing with. It changes their ability to understand the impact that you're having. Um, and it can often, at least in my experience, make it really scary to go say, hey, I messed up. Help. Because we have that system set up to be so adversarial yeah. and punitive rather than collaborative and tied to the idea that we are all responsible for each other. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I, I as, a, as a site leader, I, I try to make our professional learning community a professional learning community where we are responsible for mm -hmm. the institutional memory, the instructional practices and supporting each other, uh, as opposed to trying to lean on a larger system where the larger system may not mm -hmm. hold similar conversations, right? Because I think in the, in the middle of all of this is uh, the inhumanity that exists within education, mm -hmm. where we're, we pit people against each other, where it's this marginalized group against another marginalized group, or it's the teachers versus mm -hmm. the administrators, or it's the administrators versus central office. And there really is no right. us versus them. There's just us. And I think at the core of the Hippocratic Oath is doing no harm. That situates a professional learning community where, where we're saying that harm can occur, and then the community is determining mm -hmm. that what harm is and how to support yeah. the professional who's, who's situated within it. And I would love for that to somehow yeah. be a reality in, in public education. Who knows? Maybe this can uh, gain some traction awesome. and, and become a reality. All right, we're going to transition. Want to bring this thing to a close. Um, so I have some closeout questions that are questions that are, are posed to anybody who comes to uh, Paradigmatic Silences, this podcast. So are you ready for these questions? It'll be less yeah. uh, expansive conversation around it. Sounds Just good. some questions and there might be some follow-ups yeah. around it. Um, first one up. Paradigmatic silences is when the power structure or the powers that be have the, the, the power to ignore or silence ideas that can bring about change because they would lose control if that idea was to gain traction or if that idea was to uh, hit the floor or be heard by others. So my question to you, have you ever experienced paradigmatic silences where somebody silenced an Absolutely. idea that you thought was strong? Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the most easy to think of example is just faculty meetings pretty regularly as a teacher. I remember I'd, you know, want to chime in. I'd, hey, I have an idea. What about this? And they, you know, maybe it would get some discussion, maybe it would get shot down by another teacher, and then there would be a, okay, yeah, we'll talk about that later. And then it never goes anywhere. Um, yeah, so I've experienced that many, many times. 
Yeah. All right. Uh, schools. In the Bay Area, and I'm sure it's in many places also, schools are resegregated. And some of the, segre- the segregation now is even greater <laughs> than it was back mm-hmm. before the board versus Brown versus the Board of Education. So <laughs> is school segregation good or bad? Um, I, no, no, I just, it's, a, I, know, it reminds, I mean, it's kind of like the, the question to me, I, I, I think it's bad. I think it's awful. I think segregation is uh, the result of horribly discriminatory and racist practices. Um, but I think asking the question, sometimes, you know, I hear people, is anti-racism good or bad? Um, should we be anti-racist? Like, why is that up for debate even? Mm-hmm. Why are people asking Donald Trump right now if he's going to accept the results of the election if he loses? Like, even asking the question gives some legitimization to the idea that he wouldn't. Um, and yeah, so I think I asking that. school segregation hmm. good or bad um, could potentially like legitimize. Like, it's not good. It's not good for segregation to happen because segregation is a choice that is made for people rather than by them. Um, but I do think creating affinity spaces within schools for students where they can talk with each other and a trusted adult about the experiences that they have based on a particular part of their identity, whether it's skin color or gender identity or sexual orientation, I think is important. But segregation, you can go to this school, you can't, not good not good for anybody diversity in itself is is a an important educational objective exposure to people who are different than you is an important educational objective it just needs to be done safely okay thank you (laughs) equity gap systemic oppression Opportunity gap. Mm -hmm. These are things that have been around for quite some time. And districts have been trying to wrestle with this. The opportunity gap has been around um, Mm -hmm. and been highlighted since No Child Left Behind. So here's the question. People have been knowing about this for quite some time. Can districts make rapid changes to benefit students that have been historically underserved? I think they can implement programs quickly that are beneficial, that make a difference. I think there is, there is, you know, I was talking about the 10-year data collection assessment for the implementation of ethnic studies. Um, But there's also quantitative data that shows that ethnic studies in San Francisco for all ninth graders increase the graduation rates, the attendance rates, and the GPA of young men of color. They took that class in ninth grade, they graduated at a higher rate, they attended more school and they had a higher GPA. That kind of a change, starting a new class can be done rapidly Um, and it can have a huge positive impact. But system-wide change, um, as long as public schools are part of the democratic governmental system, it's gonna be slow. And in some cases that's oddly protective. Um, because one, we know kids need predictability. We know they need stability. Um, and I think the more that we open up rapid change on a systems and district-wide, school-wide level to completely potentially upend or end or start brand new programs, um, the more possibility there is that somebody who has too much power for their moral compass will come in and make changes that would be beneficial for themselves only and consolidate power back in the hands of the most privileged. It is my belief, philosophy, that in this education system, that Mm -hmm. teachers are the most important piece. They are the ones that directly interact with the learner, the student. Thinking about all the things that we're experiencing right now and what we're trying to change and engage in, what support do teachers need need to improve outcomes? Access to high quality professional development that's around, that that shows them the power of anti-racist practices and anti-discrimination practices. Um, They need awareness of 
their own adjacency, I think. Um, I think in many ways, my, you know, my disrupted educational experience and my lack of a diagnosis of my learning disability gave me the opportunity to really think about, you know, what must this be like for somebody who has, who has it even the next level worse, the next level of um, underprivileged from me, from my experience. So I had undiagnosed ADHD. What's it like for someone to go through school with undiagnosed dyslexia um, or dysgraphia? Um, I moved and changed schools again and again and again and had to leave a community I knew and loved and understood and move to another community where the fashion and the ways of communicating and the, the who's who was completely different. What's it like for a kid who is an English language learner who emigrates to the United States during their school experience? And they have to learn not only all of that, but also another language. Um, I think opportunities to recognize their own adjacencies, their privileges, and what they don't know yet is incredibly important, along with a professional learning community that's focused on more than just aligning assessments, that's focused on having conversations about difficult topics that aren't necessarily solvable in just a day, because that's what equity work is. Thank you. Next question. Can a racist so. district become anti-racist? That's the work that I'm doing. And also, I think, unfortunately, at the moment, just about every district is racist. Not necessarily on purpose, but I don't know of a single district that has solved racism. Um, or that is that that has um, disconnected achievement outcomes from demographics. Demographic demographics remain predictive in just about every school district that I know of. Um, so I think by default that means that every district is necessarily racist. But the theory of anti-racism is that it's our actions that change it, um, and as long as we continue moving towards and improving on the choices that we make as districts and as educators collectively and individually, then we move more towards becoming anti-racist. So I sure hope it's possible. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, and I'll lean in, I wasn't going to, but I'll lean on this, at least just the, like more times than not, mm -hmm. even when, uh, like I even pose this question, uh, more more times mm -hmm. than not, people tend to think of racism on the individual level. And as a as an educator and as a site leader, I don't think on it. Mm -hmm. I don't think about it on the individual level, although that's important. I think in terms of the systems and the institutional level, and I think uh, mm -hmm. this is where I think districts fall short. I think this is where we fall short, where we don't look at the institutions and the, the institutional pieces. Mm -hmm and the structural pieces that are producing the outcomes, we look for moments to try to point somebody out as an individual being racist when that's not what is systematically producing the same results mm -hmm. for marginalized students all across this nation. And so I, I really do think that we need to lean in around the systems thinking, around yeah. what the institutional yeah. really and the structural piece, pieces uh, are that produce the outcomes, right? Yeah. Which talks about, um, you know, if you were, let's say that instead of kids experiencing racism and push out and failure in schools based on predictive demographics, let's say that instead um, we're seeing fish dying in a pond and, you know, you go and you look at the pond and you check it out and the mm -hmm. fish are dead and you test the water and, oh, it's poisoned. So you clean the water in the pond and you put fish back in there and, oh, they end up dead again. So you look at a couple of other ponds nearby, like, oh, maybe it's, you know, maybe there's a river flowing in here. There's a little bit of a system and there's something upstream that's causing this problem. Um, and you go test that, find out that that's poisoned. And so you clean all of that up and then next year come back again and all the fish are dead again. At some point in this process, you realize it's not a pond problem. It's not a river problem. It's a groundwater problem. It's in the groundwater. Um, 
And you have to fix the groundwater in order to fix the problem that's happening in the ponds and the lakes and the rivers. And that's what racism is in our schools um, and in our school system. It's not a pond. It's not a school issue. Like we can't solve it in one school because it's in our groundwater. It's in it's in our constitutional foundational documents for the country and for different states. And it's in the historic, the historical laws about who can go to what kind of school and who's allowed to become a teacher. And it's in the, the amount that teachers are paid, right? Like the fact that teachers are paid a lower salary than other professions that have a similar level of education and responsibility is because teacher teaching was largely a women's profession and we didn't need to be paid as much because our husbands were going to make the money. Um, and that legacy is still there and we have to address the groundwater problem in order to actually accomplish becoming anti-racist. <laughs> Next question. Yes. Do white parents have they a do. role in improving an education? Obligation. Oh, go ahead. Yes. Say a little an more. obligation to no, um, say a little more. Yeah, yeah. Pay attention to how much space they take up in their children's schools. Um, but to take up enough space to make sure that the school is doing well um, and serving everybody. They have an obligation to educate themselves about the history of education um, broadly in our country and in their community. Um, they have an obligation to educate themselves, uh, check in on their own privilege and their own identity um, and, what, and, and look at what assumptions they might make about what's possible or not possible and whether or not their child their one individual child is the most important child in that school or whether the school doing well and being able to serve all the children, including your own, is the most important. Um, I think white parents have an obligation to try to attend local public schools with students of color, with students who are on the free and reduced lunch program, with students who are English language learners. When we I'm a white woman and I have two white children. And um, when white parents like me choose to put their kids and therefore their tax money and their capital and their time and effort into a school that isn't for students without privilege, um, that we are, we are, we are hurting our communities when we do that. Um, and so I think that, I think it's incredibly important that, that white parents seek to improve education for everyone, not just their own kids. Last question. Do you see black and brown voices being incorporated I into do. the conversation Wonderful. on education? Um, more now, more in the last year or so, maybe two, at least in my experience, um, than before. I've seen Dr. Bettina Love invited to multiple districts to speak on um, to speak on her work and about the the concept of wanting to do more than surviving and of humanizing schools. Um, I've seen Dr. Zaretta Hammond's book. Uh, culturally responsive teaching and the brain start to become common language in schools and in multiple schools. Um, I see community organizations partnering with schools and with districts where I don't see black and brown voices being incorporated into the conversation on education is largely at the leadership level and in the at the teacher level. Um, we do not have enough black and brown educators. We do not have enough educators of color who reflect the identities of our students. Um, you know, another core educational philosophy of mine is that kids need to see themselves represented and reflected in what they're learning about and how they're learning. Um, you know, if you're always learning about someone else and never yourself, it's not very fun. It's hard to make those connections. Um, and we don't have enough black teachers teaching black students. We don't have enough black superintendents and assistant superintendents and principals. Um, we don't have enough bilingual um, 
Spanish-speaking and immigrant school leaders who can use their own experiences to, again, look at the adjacency and look at the, the possibilities and use what they know about their own experiences and what it's like to walk every day in their own life to create opportunities for the students who they are tasked to care for. Lindsay Slacks, thank you for appearing on Paradigmatic Silences. You are an amazing individual. You're an amazing educator who are doing some wonderful things here in the Bay Area. Uh, you're an administrator down in the peninsula, mm -hmm. and you currently are residing in the East Bay. Um, I think uh, the only other thing I'd like, like to say, say before we close out. People want to be part of this conversation with me. Teachers Take Action is um, a group on Facebook. Now that school has up, gotten up and running, I'm going to be a little more active in there again. Um, and I'd love people to join in the conversation there. Um, and, and yeah, thank you for having me. This was an absolute joy. And um, yeah, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I love talking about education with you, Michael. Love talking about education with you as well. Yeah, Fellow yeah. Golden you Bear, Principal Leadership Institute alum. I came back and Thanks. 20 years later, 2018, I, I got that degree from Cal. Paradigmatic Silences, Lindsay Slacks. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening. Take care. Yeah. Thank you, Mrs. Lindsay Slacks. If you want to know more about Paradigmatic Silences, you can visit InsideTheMindOfAPrincipal.com and read my blog on The Opportunity Gap and Paradigmatic Silences. You can follow me at Twitter. My Twitter handle is Michael C. Essien. Paradigmatic Silences is sponsored by the Essien Education Group. Thank you. Until our next episode.